Welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. We lay down every burden, every trial, all the anxiety that we may have walked in here with, God. Because you are the possible God. And when I put my plans before you, my plans plus you equals majority. You are the victorious God. You are the only living and the only wise God. You are the strong God. And God, tonight, some of us need to put some things on your to-do list. And we just realize that only your power can transform some of the burdens that we've come here with. Heavenly Father, we ask that tonight we would lay ourselves down before our plans though. God, tonight we pray that the Holy Spirit would do his work in our midst, that you would change lives and that tonight there would be not the eloquence of a man or the intelligence of a man or the personality of a man, but it would be the power of Jesus. That's what we need tonight. We, we don't need advice from a man. We need power from Jesus. We come here tonight waiting to hear from Jesus. And so God, do what you do. Use broken men for the pure word of God. Speak through me, God, and allow the Holy Spirit to divide himself up in this room and meet us where we're at. And for the proud, bring us low. And for the discouraged, bring us up. But bring us to your feet, God, so that we might meet you. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. February 6th of 2013, my wife and I moved here. And when we moved here, we had the daunting task of meeting people in Brooklyn so that we could start a church. And as we walked the streets and we did not know anyone, we felt the weight of thinking where we could meet. And God opened up a door where we could meet in this facility. And as you can feel today, this facility has been a space that we've begun to outgrow. And so later on today, we are gonna have a community meeting and we are gonna talk about the building that we're gonna be moving into next year. And as we talk about that building, it is not simply so that we could be in a new space, it is that we could reach a community because we believe that God has called us not to just be a people that gather, but God has called us to be a people that proclaim the word of God throughout all of New York City. And as we do that, in Flatbush, we want to reach the neighborhood surrounding that building. And we want people to come from all around. But as I, you know, have gone around, I've been raising money to be able to get that building. The other week, I went down to what's called the North American Mission Board, one of the people we partner with in order to plant churches. And I asked them for $200,000 to help us with the building. And you know, it's, it's wild when you ask somebody for $200,000 and pretend like that's not a big deal. 
Like you're, you know, you're in the meeting and, and you, it almost sounds like I asked you to pass me a piece of toast. Like, you know, I'm just sitting there talking and I say, you know, um, you know, so we really believe that God's going to do great things. And so, uh, we believe if you help pay for the construction costs, God will do amazing things. So, uh, what we see here is about $200,000 that will take. And then you wait and you look at them like what you said wasn't crazy. And they said, yes. But when they said yes, what I realized was I felt real successful. You know, I felt, I felt awesome. God, God's providing for us. We had this dream and God's providing for us. And then I look around and I see your lives changing. I hear some of your stories and God's transforming us. And, and I see people getting baptized at our church and I see the power of God. But I was in Detroit last week and my, my cousin, he, he checks us out on YouTube and he says, he says, you know, James, you're so successful. Man, what is the secret to your success? And I said, there's really no secret. Our secret sauce is Jesus. And I was successful before I got to New York. I was successful when there were two people in the room. I was successful when we didn't have a building and, and God had called me to some success even before we get this new building, we are successful. We're gonna have hundreds to thousands of people in that building and people are gonna give their lives to Christ and people are gonna talk about what God is doing in Flatbush through our church. But I want you to know we're successful before we started. Because success isn't when a lot of people fill a room. Success is when you align your life with the word of God. And you desire for him to fill your life. When I played uh, football, um, I was on the defense and defensive team, the defensive team actually gets plays. So the offensive team gets a play, but the defensive team gets a play too. And the defensive player, I was a defensive tackle. And so I would hear always two things. So you would get the play really quick. You'd hear like flame, Roger, 22, or you'd hear fire, uh, lightning, 54, and there would be all these words that would come at you. But my coach would always tell me, there's really only two things you need to realize. Alignment, then assignment. Alignment, then assignment. You see, the problem is, James, they would tell me, is that when you play on the defensive line, when we say uh, flame, that, that means that you're gonna align in the A gap. And when we say Roger, it means that's your assignment. We want you to go to the right. And so the very first thing you've got to know is that in order for us to be successful on the defensive line and on the defense, you've got to be lined up in the right place. Because if you're lined up in the right place and you do the right play, you're still doing the wrong thing. Alignment, then assignment. And as I come into the city, I see in this city, people having the greatest hunger for success I've ever seen. I mean, people are working on that resume and they're getting it cleaned up and they're building their brand. 
and they're getting their name right and they're putting their name out there and they want to be different and their mom told them they were special and everybody in their hometown told them that they have these unique gifts, skills, and abilities, and you do. But if you are not aligned with the word of God, you may have the right assignment, but you are out of alignment. Alignment is when you say, tell me about my finances, tell me about my relationships, tell me how I talk to people, tell me how I deal with my roommates, and you line yourself up with the way you do things. See, when you only focus on your assignment, what you think you're supposed to be doing, you'll be mean-spirited, you'll be jealous, and you'll do all types of things because you think success is when a lot of people are saying your name. You think success is when they're retweeting your tweets or when they're liking your posts or when they're inviting you into a room or when they're applauding or when there's a lot of people that know you. You think that's your assignment, but your assignment is not as important as your alignment. It's alignment, then assignment. Why don't you say that with me? Alignment, then assignment. Alignment, then assignment. Stop focusing so much on your assignment and spend some time with the word of God. Get aligned with him every single day. Make sure you're lined up. Alignment. And the reason why this is so important, if he is the king of the universe, God, the God of heaven and earth, has uniquely gifted, crafted, and skilled you to do something powerful in this world. You have unique talents. You have a unique background. You have a unique thumbprint. And there is a problem in this world that God has made you to solve. And you have a unique story. But your story can get robbed if you are not allowing the creator of heaven and earth to be the true author of it, to be the one you're fully submitted to. I believe that we are going to help be a part of changing Flatbush. And I believe God has made you to change your world, to change the things around you. And we are gonna look in a story of Nehemiah, a man who was an ordinary person. There was nothing skillfully, there was nothing that was great in skill about Nehemiah, nothing. Nehemiah was a glorified butler. Nehemiah was a man who they called a cupbearer. His job literally was to taste wine before the king drank it. We know nothing about his ability to be an architect. We know nothing about his leadership prowess. We know nothing about his eloquence. The Bible does not give us information about his skills. But what we'll see today is that he was aligned. And then once he had an assignment, he saw success. Look in Nehemiah chapter one. And we are gonna be in this for four weeks. And we, I'm sweating already, praise God. I, that's what happens when you don't preach for a few weeks, you get excited. The intro is basically a sermon in and of itself. Um, <laughs> Nehemiah chapter one, verse one. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakali, 
during the month of Chislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa. Nehemiah, if you look at Ezra and Nehemiah together, they're essentially one story about the walls of Jerusalem being built up. And it says the words of Nehemiah, and it says during the month of Chislev. And so what you'll see there is that this is basically a personal memoir that Nehemiah is writing. Chislev is around the time of November through December. And this is the 20th year, he says, and that 20th year speaks to King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And Persia is the most dominant power at this time. And so he sits at the right hand of the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes, as his cupbearer. And it says that I was in the fortress city of Susa, and this is present-day Iran. And in this community that he's in, He's in a protected community. Everything is good. And though he is like a butler, he has the influence of something like a vice president because he's always advising and encouraging the king. He has everything he wants. Life is good. But there's something inside Nehemiah that feels like I think I'm made for something more. Nehemiah had all the success you could have in the world. He had all the resources in the world. He literally had everything at the access of the king who he was next to every day. But it wasn't enough. And in verse two, it says, Hananiah, Hananiah, Hananiah one of my brothers arrived with men from Judah and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. And this is just a bit of history here, but when he has his brothers come, he asks them some questions about what has happened in Jerusalem. He's probably about a thousand miles away in Persia and there he has questions, tell me what's happening in Jerusalem. The walls of Jerusalem had been taken down. The gates had been burnt down by the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar came in and he destroyed the city, taking people and deporting them to Babylon. This would happen several times. You could read more about that in 2 Kings chapter 24. As Nebuchadnezzar came in and he takes the people from Jerusalem over to Babylon. Over the years, he would allow the people to come back in different remnants. And they would then try to build and rebuild the walls back to what they used to be. Put the gates up back to what they used to be and put the temple back to what it used to be. The temple, the very place where God would dwell. It was now, though, the year 440. And this had happened in 586 BC. So 186, uh, 146 years had gone by. And here they are. And so this is the crazy thing. Nehemiah already knew that the walls were down. 
They had been down close to 150 years. He already knew the problems. But he asks one more time, and I think we'll see something break inside of him. The next verse, they said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's walls have been broken down and his gates have been burned. <laughs> this is 150, it's not news. That's old news. Why are you asking a question you already have an answer for? What was going on inside of Nehemiah that he felt the need to ask? And I think we learned something deep by what Hananiah, his brother said. He said, those who survive, he says the walls are down and the gates have burned, but look there in the middle. He says, the people, there's great trouble and there's great disgrace. They're disgraced. Nehemiah, I know you know that our walls are down and we're vulnerable to attack at any point, but the people, they're discouraged. Their heads are low and they're saddened by their state. The word they're disgraced, the same word we would get for reproach. It means you're an example, a poor example to the world. Imagine if Houston still had waters rise up. Imagine if New Orleans levees were still down and you knew that whenever it rained, the water would rise up and they'd have no hope. Well, for them, their walls are down and they have no hope against any attack. And so what really is happening here is Nehemiah is hearing this question and he's hearing how the people are discouraged and disgraced and he's saying, still? This is 150 years we've been hearing about this. Still? The walls still ain't together? The gates are still down? My grandfather used to talk about the walls being down. This has become normal. It's normal to us now. And Nehemiah got fed up and he wouldn't take it anymore. And what happened in Nehemiah is he said, somebody's got to do something about this and it might as well be me. And at some point, how much information do you need? Still, there's still a school to prison pipeline for young black boys still? Still, we're hearing about some of the same issues happening with health in our community still. You know, you know I remember when we were trying to get people to come, you know, go back to Flatbush. And I remember people were like, we don't want to go to Flatbush because there's no churches. So what you're saying is still, there's still no good churches around here. And what can happen in a culture and what can happen in a city and what can happen is a pe when a people is that they don't get frustrated anymore. They don't get mad no more. They're not even mad. They're used to it. We're used to the walls being down. Yeah, that's what I remember. 
My great-grandfather used to tell me about when walls used to be up, but who can change it? It just is what it is. It's going to be what it's going to be. That's the way I've always known it. People said it's always going to be like this. I heard years ago that someone tried to rebuild and it didn't work out. And who am I? Little old me. I'm just a cupbearer. Who can do anything about it? But Nehemiah said, something's got to change and I am going to do something about it. And it wasn't because he was skilled. And it wasn't because he was sharp or quick-witted. It wasn't because he had this dynamic understanding of architecture. He got angry and he became broken. And the verse after this says in verse four, in this personal memoir, he says, when I heard these words, I sat down and I cried, I wept. I mourned, he said, for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heavens, of the heavens. When it says he sat down, in the Greek, it's not saying that he just decided to just sit and ponder and think like, hmm, oh, I'm crying. It's, it's saying, essentially saying he collapsed. And he's grieving. And it's that deep guttural cry. And he's crying out to God, why God? Why is this still this way? Why? And he is weeping and he is mourning and he's done nothing wrong because he is in the palace of privilege and he has everything he wants. He's next to the king. These are not his problems. These are the problems of his people, but he decided not to live in his privilege and he decided to go after the people he cared for and loved. Why is this still this way? And something needs to change. And I'm going to do something about it. It says that as he cried, he is mimicking one who would come 440 years later. Jesus, in Luke chapter 19, verse 41 and 42, as he approached Jerusalem. He looks out at Jerusalem, the city, and he begins to cry. He begins to weep. And he says, if you knew this day what would bring peace, but now is hidden from your eyes. Jesus is up on a mountaintop looking down saying, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, you don't know the plans that could be. If only you would get aligned with the word of God. If only you would do the things that you were meant to do and live the way that my father had created you only if you knew. And so his heart broke and he began to cry. And so many people are looking for something to get passionate about, something to get involved in, something to get invested in. And oftentimes people say, you know, I want to get passionate about something. And I tell them, no, you don't. No, you don't. You want to get interested in something. 
because they don't call it the passion of Christ because Jesus was interested in salvation. It is the passion of Christ because that word in Latin, passio, it means the suffering. He suffered for us. And passion, to become passionate about it, doesn't mean you're interested in your reading, doesn't mean you're concerned on a mission trip, it means you allow yourself to get hurt. Sometimes by the very people you're trying to help. And you say, I've got a heart for the city. Until you hurt, you ain't got a heart for anybody. If it's not in your hurt, it's most likely not in your heart. You've got to feel for people. You've got to get frustrated with people. And one of the things that reason why people don't get passionate about stuff is that they don't want to do all that. I don't, I don't want to, I don't, you know what? If I got to call one more person, I can't, I can't. Oh my God, I can't. Cannot call another person. You don't want to get mad. You don't want to cry. Suffering, suffering. That is the pathway to impact. Suffering, hurting. That is the pathway to making change. Pain, pain. That is the place that you will help people. And oftentimes, some of the greatest pain that you've experienced will be the greatest place that you'll find ministry. It's interesting. Um, for years, I, I, you know, we have four pastors on staff and I, I enjoy spending time with them and learning about them and, and discipling and mentoring or just being a friend the best of my ability. But one of the reasons I have a huge passion for that is that nobody did that for me. And for years, I, I would be like, I would sit down with a guy, I'm like, you know what I'm saying? Can you teach me? And I'm a pastor, I'm 29 years old, trying to pastor this church. Can you teach me something? You know what I'm saying? I'll buy you breakfast, lunch, dinner. You know what I'm saying? I'll massage your feet, just tell me something. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> And they would always say, yeah, but they would never show up again. And I realized that the frustration I felt over years has turned into the place that I would have my greatest impact. A young lady at LIU Brooklyn, while we were there, she, I remember she came in and um, she would come in our office after Bible study and while she was there, she would actually begin to tell us all the sexual exploits she had that weekend, as if I cared. <laughs> so she would just go on and on and on. And there was a point where I didn't know how to tell her, like, this is, I'm a pastor. Like, why are you telling me this, right? And she would go into detail about, you know, the guys can do what they want. Girls should be able to do what they want. You know what I'm saying? I want to live my life and all that. And then still would come to Bible study. I'm like, what am I not saying? <laughs> So this would happen for two years. For two years, she would come in our, and her clothes just got tighter and tighter every year, you know what I'm saying? She's out there more and out there more. And then she says, I'm transferring schools. And I thought to myself, my God, it's gonna get worse at this next school. At least she was a part of a Bible study here. What's gonna happen when she goes there? She leaves. 
Don't hear from her for two years. Off my radar. I'm pastoring a church. I was at a conference though in Philadelphia. And I go to the door of this conference hall in Philly and there is the young lady I saw two years before. And she says, you know, when somebody surprises you, like, hey. And I was like, oh my gosh. She's like, yeah, I'm, I, I transferred to Temple University and I, I got involved in a ministry there. And now I'm here and I'm, I'm passing out these, um, you know, I'm here as a volunteer for this conference and it's so good to see you. And so we talked a little bit. And then the next day I saw her during the prayer time and the prayer time was at 8 a.m. And she came and was there at the prayer time and I was so excited. And then she, while she was praying, she stopped and she said, I wanna give a testimony about Pastor James. She looked over and I remember she was like, you see, I used to wild out on campus. I used to have all these sexual exploits because I was so hungry for a father. I was so hungry for relationship and I would let men do whatever they wanted to me. But now I've started this ministry called Pinky Promise. And what this ministry is, is about purity. And so now I've actually started another ministry on the campus down the street. And so I just want girls to know that they can remain pure and not put themselves out there. And while she's saying that, I'm breaking down, I'm crying, I can't even pray, I'm a mess because I'm sitting there looking at this girl that was involved with multiple men and now she has multiple ministries. And what I'm thinking about is this. Where your misery has been is most likely where your ministry will be. Where you have had pain and suffering and you say, it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. You are a pathway for change. Your frustration, your pain, your burdens, all the brokenness, that wasn't just for any old reason. God didn't throw out the chapters of your past. God wants to use all that mess. And a lot of your misery, you'll find ministry. And so here Nehemiah is wiping away the tears of his eyes. Oh, and he's felt the weight of people and caring. It hurts more when you care. Easiest thing is to stop caring. Easy to become numb. Hurts more, easier to stay informed and stay woke than to get involved. Yes, I just said that. Now let me just say, to me, if you wanna be woke, it means you're getting involved. If you're, if you're just talking, to me, you're really sleepwalking. You're not really doing anything. So to me, it's about getting involved, okay? So if we wanna get involved with oppression, if we wanna get involved with prisons, if we wanna get involved, that's getting involved, that's being woke. Repeating something you saw on a video, that's being, in, that's, that's, you're informed. But God has made you to make change in this world. God has made you, he's gifted you to make changes in this world.
Nehemiah 1, 5 through 10, he begins to pray. He said, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive. Notice how much time he just spends in worshiping and being in awe of God. That's not this sermon, but just notice how much he's just spending time telling God who he is, not for God's sake, but for his own. Let your, ear, your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. So this is classic intercession. He's interceding for people. But notice what happens next. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly towards you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances and, get, and you gave your servant Moses. I wanna stop there. He's interceding for people in Jerusalem. But he is in Persia. He's the cupbearer to the king. They're the ones with the gates burnt down. They're the ones with the walls broken down. They're the ones who have done all these things to be mismanaged and things aren't together. But I want you to see a little word that he says there. He says, I confess the sins, what's that say? We. He goes on to say, both I and my father's family. Notice he's talking about the generations and the generations of those who have put more emphasis. Many of them were now worshiping idol gods and weren't focused on the temple anymore. And he's saying, my, my, I and my father's family have sinned. And then he says, we have acted corruptly towards you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances. Nehemiah, while he is praying for these people includes himself in the problem. <laughs> he sees that he is part of the issue. Let me go to the next few verses. Please remember what you command your servant Moses. And now he is quoting from Leviticus 26 and 33. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. If you return to me and carefully observe my commandments, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizons, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I, come, I chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power. And jump down to Nehemiah 11 real quick. Nehemiah 1.11. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today. Grant him compassion in the presence of this man. So he is daily going before the king knowing that the king has all the resources to deal with the problems of the walls and the gates. And as he begins to drill down his prayer, he begins to ask God that he be a part of doing something. He says, I want to be a part of doing something. And if you look back though, earlier he says, but I have been part of the problem. I, I confess my sins 
before you. I am part of this corporate problem. And you see, when you involve yourself in the problems of people and you get deep into their issues, if you do not realize that you partake in brokenness as well, then you will end up oppressing the same people you're trying to set free. Moses, Moses had a vision and he was like, I'm supposed to be able to set these people free. But he went down there with the haughtiness and the arrogance of always being in the palace. And he would have to spend 40 years being humbled before his God. And when he went there in Exodus chapter two, they said to him, who, who made you commander and judge over us? Who are you? You're not better than me. And yet you see on one end, Nehemiah, he has the humility to see the brokenness in those he wants to serve. He sees that same brokenness in himself. And so you see, there is this balance he has of humility. But then he prays in verse 11. He says, God in verse 11, chapter one, verse 11. He says, give your servant success today. Give me success. I'm, oh, I'm jacked up. I'm like them. I'm, I'm, I'm corrupted. I'm bad. But give me success today. Pick me. Choose me. I'll do it. I'll go. I am as sinful as the people I want to serve. But I am asking God, choose me. Use me. And what I want to encourage us to do is I envision a day where we have a sea of people doing a sea of ministry in the city. But I want you to not pray only for miracles. I want you to pray for opportunity because what Nehemiah does is he fully realizes I am just a cupbearer. I am corrupted. I am broken, but I am stepping up. Someone's got to do something about this. It might as well be me. Choose me. Pick me. Pick me, God. I want to help. These churches, there, there's not enough gospel preaching churches. Choose me. Pick me. I'll do it. I want I believe God has gifted me to make unique music in this world. Pick me. I want to do something special for you, God. There's not enough teachers out here. Choose me. I'll teach. There's so much pain amongst our sisters who have gone through sexual brokenness. Pick me. I'll do it. So many men are confessing sin of lust and masturbation and porn and no one's talking about this enough. No one's gathering. Pick me. I'll get them together. Choose me. I'm as broken as everybody else, but I'll do it. And I want you to have the courage to start praying for opportunity, for God to start using you. Not because you're skilled, not because you're eloquent or gifted, 
but because you're available. When I, um, many of you know, uh, is Sasha back there? Sasha Hallett, could you raise up your hand? Sasha, give it up for Sasha. Right? I love it when people clap and have no idea why they're clapping. They're like, yep, Sasha, go Sasha. Sasha, Sasha Hallett came down from uh, upstate New York and he is now the campus pastor at LIU Brooklyn. And it's crazy because as many of you know, I used to be the campus pastor there. And one day when we first started this church, I was walking by the campus and I noticed it was downtown Brooklyn. And I was like, man, this is in the heart of the city. I was like, I bet you ministry is popping on this campus, okay. And I Googled it and there was no Christian ministry on campus. And a month later, I was walking by with one of my friends, a guy named Brian Murray. And as I was walking by, I stopped and I go, there's that campus again. And I just Googled that. There's no Christian ministry. And my buddy Brian said, James, man, why don't we put our hands on the school and just pray? And so in the middle of downtown, all the people are coming by, moving, coming and going. I'm new to the city. I literally don't know where I am. And we just started putting our hands on the building. And I promise you, I prayed, God, I just read there's no Christian ministry on this campus. And Lord, I just pray you place somebody on this campus. And if no one do it, will do it, I'll do it, Jesus. I'll do it. I don't know how I'm gonna do it and pastor a church, but I'll do it. You can pick me. And then two weeks later, I emailed the priest who was the head of the campus ministry. His name was Father Charlie. And I said, Father Charlie, I would love to help out with campus ministry in some way. And he emailed me and said, I'm on sabbatical in Rome. I was like, praise God, he's not in Rome. That's... I, go, I go on sabbatical to like Pennsylvania, so. I'm on sabbatical in Rome. So I, he says, so he kind of, you know, so I emailed him back and I said, hey, is there anybody I can talk to? You can talk to the rabbi, Rabbi Josh. So I emailed Rabbi Josh and I said, Rabbi Josh, I wonder if I could get some time with you because I'd love to do Christian ministry on the campus. And I felt weird asking to do Christian ministry <laughs> to a rabbi. I email him, he says, this is great. We would love to have you on campus. Uh, can you come to the campus next Tuesday? It's a great. I go to the campus, I'm standing there in line, getting ready to go and check myself in. And behind me, there was a young woman yelling, yelling at a couple, a guy and a girl. And the guy and the girl, they're yelling at this girl saying, no, he's not. And the girl's like, yes, he is. And they're like, no, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's not. And they're arguing back and forth. At this point, I had gone and sat down. And my mom always told me, don't pay attention to people when they argue. 
but I did this time. And I sat there and as I stared at them, the guy looked at me and said, well, why don't we ask him? And I was like, my mama was right. I knew it. Don't look at people. So they all come over to me. And here it is, this couple, and there is this girl. And he says, we're in an argument. And I said, oh yeah, I'm, I'm new to the campus. I don't know. No, no, we're in an argument and we need you to settle it. And I said, well, what's the argument? They said, we just got out of class and we want to know, do you believe Jesus Christ is Lord? I was like, are there cameras up in this place? Is this some kind of like show? I would go on from there. The rabbi would eventually come down and meet me. I, I explained to them about Jesus. I had about a 15 minute conversation with them. It was amazing. The rabbi begins to show me around the campus. And then he says, there's a Christian woman who is the assistant dean and she will love you. He walks me into her office. And when I go into her office, she says, hey, thank you, rabbi. I don't know what he told you, but we don't need a Christian ministry on campus. Thanks, but no thanks. If we allow you on campus, we'll have to have somebody for the Hindus, somebody for the Muslims, somebody for the Baha'i. So I'm sorry, thanks, but no thanks. And so I went home, told my wife, hey, I got into a great, I don't know anybody in the city. I got into a great conversation with people. It was amazing. A week later, the rabbi emails me back. He says, what happened with the assistant dean? I said, she told me that she didn't want me on the campus. He said, I'm gonna set up an appointment with the dean then, cause you need to be on campus. And what I did not realize was that two weeks before I emailed, there was a Christian young man who had committed suicide. And all the Christians on campus were saying, we need a pastor. The Catholics have someone. The Jews have someone. We don't have anybody. And I would eventually email them a week later. I walked into the dean's office. And as I sat there before the dean, I thought to myself, hey man, I'm just here. I, I know the assistant dean said I couldn't come. He says, oh man, so glad to have you here. And he keeps talking to me. And then he turns around his computer screen and it, the computer screen showed all the different things he was over. He was over nine different departments and he was over campus ministry. And he says, James, I'm over nine different departments. I got so much going on. And as I look at these nine different departments and, uh, and it, was like a, it, was, it was like a hierarchy, um, what do you call those things? Uh, org chart, it was an org chart. And on the org chart, it said Father Charlie under campus ministry, it said Father Charlie. And underneath Father Charlie, it said Rabbi Josh. And underneath Rabbi Josh, it said Pastor James. So he's talking like, yeah, I'm just deal dealing with all these different things. So I said, ask a question. Who is Pastor James? And I promise you, he said, 
I don't know how that got there. I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> and he called in his secretary. Her name is Monica James. She said, Monica, come in here. How did this name get on here? She says, I don't know. You put it together. He says, so they start getting into an argument. And I said, hey guys, I don't know who Pastor James is, but I'm a pastor. And my name is James. And if you need some help, and he cut me off, he says, look, I don't know how that name got on there, but if you're open to it, we'll give you an office in the freshman dorm. Would you like that? And if you know about anything about campus ministry, that's where you want to be. I never gave him a resume. I never told him I did years of campus ministry. He didn't know my website. He didn't know my church and he barely knew my name, but God had already set me up before I walked in that room. There is. There is ministry waiting for you. There are people waiting for you. Your name is already someplace. I'm not gonna deal with this anymore. Choose me, pick me. Heavenly Father, would you create a spirit of availability in our people? Oh God. Make us available, God. Pick us, God. Pick us. Help us change Flatbush. We're not better than any other church. We're not wiser. Pick us. We want to be lined up with what you say. We want to be assigned to what you want us to do. Choose us. And we believe our name is already on that building. And we believe that there are people already waiting, waiting for us. Pick us in Jesus' name. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at BridgeChurchNYC or visit our website, BridgeChurchNYC.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.